Hi, and welcome to the study of God's Word from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. This morning, I know, typically, because it is Palm Sunday, we talk about the story of Christ. We talk about His journey from birth, the journey to when He came to town to proclaim to proclaim that he is Christ and that he was there for them. I want to talk a little bit this morning about where we fit in. Where do we fit in as a church in this story of Jesus Christ? And though we know the story, we know what happened, we know that Jesus Christ was mission-minded when he was walking through that town that day, knowing full well what was to come. And that was his death. And then miraculously, his resurrection. And for us, eternal salvation. So I want to talk a little bit about how Christ would perceive us to be as a church and how we move forward as a church and get better. And yes, as a church, we can get better. So let me say this. To compete for a championship, and I know all my sports fans in here, you're ready, you're gearing up for this. To compete for a championship during a great game and a great team, we all know that some of the greatest teams and some of the greatest moments in those times happen because the team, either during halftime or wherever, they make adjustments. And so I'm proposing this morning that we as a church need to make some adjustments. I think of the new year as kind of a halftime. And I know a lot of you think that, especially if you had kids that went to school, you kind of consider January as a halftime because the first semester is over, now you're gearing up for the next semester, right? So halftime before the second semester begins, and at halftime, great teams must make some adjustments if they want to win the game. So with that in mind, I propose that we as a church are going to have to change the way we think about things. And now before you start rushing the podium here and say, wait a minute, wait a minute, we're not changing anything. Well, no, we're not changing anything, but yes, we are at the same time. So we're going to have to change the way we think about things as a church if we're going to win in 2023. Now, some people call these paradigm shifts. What I'm asking for is for us to begin to think differently as a church family. So how can our church change for the better? For today, let's think about some adjustments that we need to make to be more effective for Christ in the months ahead. There are Some non-negotiables, though. First of all is our commitment to Jesus will stay the same. Our commitment to the Bible is God's word and the source of truth will stay the same. Our mission, our vision will stay the same. And our core values will stay the same. The same, but we cannot continue to look at things the way we always have. So I propose there are five commitments that I will make to you and you will make with me as we go further on in 2023. First of all, 
We need to go from serve us to service. Serve us to service. I'll never forget several years ago in my Old Testament theology before I started my doctorate, we were trying to share a word picture to describe a problem that we faced in our prospective churches. And we were all facing the same issue. It was a lack of volunteers. One student said the problem with some of our people is that they have this attitude. And he had a picture of a man walking up to somebody asking him to tie his shoe. He had that attitude. Tie my shoe. Too many of us have the serve us attitude. There's no question that a church ought to meet your needs. This church here strives to meet your needs. That's our goal. It is. It's one of our goals. We want to meet your needs. We want to meet your needs. And we, what we found, though, is that when we focus on our own needs, then most likely we will gripe and grumble. That's when I am most likely to not grow. But when we shift from serve us to service, we find that our needs miraculously are being met. In other words, we grow. It is not, listen to this one, and don't jump on me yet until you heard the whole thing, okay? It is not the responsibility of the staff here at Winton First Southern Baptist Church to do ministry on the behalf of the members and attenders of Winton First Baptist Church. Let me explain. Here's the job description for the staff and our scripture and our focus this morning. Turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 11. We're going to go over 11 and 12. Ephesians chapter 4, 11 and 12. says this, and he gave some as apostles, and some as prophets, and some as evangelists, and some as pastors and teachers, for the equipping of the saints, for the work of service, to the building up of the body of Christ. Our task is to equip you. Our task is to then mobilize you. To be obedient to God's call on your life to serve. We just have to broaden our definition of ministry. Most of us have been conditioned to think of ministry as something that pastors do or leadership does. But here's a definition of ministry that might surprise you. Ministry is meeting someone else's needs with the resources that God has given you. Meeting the needs of others with the resources that God has given you. Serving others ought to be a normal part of life for every Christ follower. You may not be a Bible scholar. You may not be Billy Graham. But no matter what your present level of maturity is, you can meet someone and you can meet their needs with the resources that God has given you. We're going to be more 
intentional to investigate and communicate the needs in our church and in our community and to look for every point of interest where we are being invited to serve. Too often we hear about things in the community and in the homes and everything else that there's an opportunity for us to serve. But then we just kind of overlook and say, well, I, I, I'm just too busy. Or, you know, I'm not, I'm, I don't think that's an opportunity for me. But this is God saying to us, look, I'm giving you the opportunity. What are you doing with it? Our goal should be to see an increasing percentage of people serving in some ministry. And I know some of you are squirming in your seats because essentially this is what I'm saying. We're coming after you. Are we sweating yet? We're coming after you. Not in a sense that we're going to force you into something that you do not love and you will hate doing. That is not what we're saying. What I'm saying is we as a church need to be intentional. We need to come at you in a way that you already know what you need to be doing, but you just need that little nudge, right? But every single one of us sitting here right now should be serving in ministry in one way or another. And some of us are. Some of us are serving in too many committees. But that's okay. God provides what we need when we need it. And so we, we rely upon that. Many years ago now, I went to go see the movie, and some of you have seen it too, Antoine Fisher. Have you seen this movie? Anyways, Antoine Fisher is the story of a young man who grew up in Cleveland in an abusive home. And his mother gave birth to him in prison and never claimed him. His father was shot before he was even born. He joined the Navy after uh, he found himself on the streets. And Fisher, the main character, was ordered to see a naval psychiatrist about his temper. With the support of the doctor, Fisher found the ability and the courage to stop fighting and start healing. And one of the most moving scenes, at least for me, was when he shares a poem to his counselor. And it says this, who will cry for the little boy lost and all alone? Who will cry for the little boy abandoned without his own? Who will cry for the little boy who knows well hurt and pain? Who will cry for the little boy he died and died again? Who will cry for the little boy, a good boy he has tried to be? Who will cry for the little boy who cries inside of me? Listen, there are a lot of Antoine Fishers in this world. Some of them go to this church. And they wonder, does anybody care? Lots of broken people who wonder, who will cry for me? You volunteering to serve in ministry inside this church and outside this church can make a huge difference. The key question, what will we do as a church to be mobilized to serve in some area of brokenness this year? Where will we serve to facilitate that and to reach those who are broken. God has certainly blessed this church 
and raised us up in numbers and resources, not to take pride in being one of the more influential churches in our city and area, but we're to be his instrument in fulfilling his mission to serve. We will help our church shift from serve us to service, but also from impressing. We don't need to impress anyone, but we go from impressing from a distance to impacting someone or something up close. When I was in seminary, I constantly looked up pastors of old and new to kind of get a perspective of what being a pastor really was. And one of the more influential pastors in America, Adrian Rogers, most of you are familiar, spoke to my heart quite often. And I loved listening to him speak. But if you were to ask me who impacted my life the most while I was in seminary, I would say it was a small group of guys who I kept in touch with week after week. And we were praying together. We were reading our assignments and everything together. We would encourage one another. We would... um, you know, do the things that we do to help us get through this time in our life where we're like, is this ever going to end? Because that's what it felt like at times. Studying, studying the word and, and being God's graces and all that was wonderful. It was the most wonderful time in my life so far. But it had its challenges, and I needed help. Um, one thing that I kind of boast about a little bit is that during seminary time, you as a church graced me with that ability to do, I would say, 99% of that schoolwork and studying and all that here on this campus. Not once while my boys were growing up did I take seminary work home. And I am ever grateful for that. I didn't have to bring the stresses of that home to them. I was able to be their dad, I was able to be a husband. I was able to do the things and be the spiritual leader of my household. So if I haven't told you before, thank you for that. But I was talking about Adrian Rogers and these guys that you know, I worked with. They impacted my life. Adrian Rogers impressed me. He impressed me. But my friend John, who I will talk about a lot, just... Bear with me. But my friend John and those guys, they impacted me. Adrian Rogers impressed me, but those guys impacted me. And then the reason some of us here aren't gaining victory in key areas of our lives is because we won't make a commitment to get into that small group. We have plenty of opportunities in the back. If you want to be impacted, get into a small group. One of the fondest memories I've had when I first came to this church all those years ago was Pastor Martin's Bible study, that small group. And those of you who are involved know exactly what I'm talking about. There was a camaraderie there. It was something that we looked forward to every week. I believe it was Tuesday nights. It was something that I looked forward to. It was something that I couldn't live without. It was something that we all enjoyed. But we found victory in that. And we found that from that Bible study, the different ministries that stemmed off of that. That small group made an impact. 
Small group impact has happened to me over and over again in my life. And that's when I think we grow best. And I think we grow best as a church. We know what's coming down the pipeline. There will be a time where we will not meet in a building such as wonderful as this one. It will go back to the way it was, where we're meeting in homes. Hopefully not for a long, long time, but that is the reality. That is the reality. But with those small groups, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayer, and everyone kept feeling a sense of awe. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common, day by day, breaking bread from house to house. They were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day to those who were being saved. Acts chapter 2. That should be our mission as a church. We want to see an increasing percentage of people here at Winton involved in small groups. And we're going to have to figure out a way to measure our effectiveness in finding out how many of you are in groups and how many of you are not. In other words, we're coming for you, right? So what will we do to strengthen those small groups from a distance? To impact those up close. How will we do that? Well, we're evaluating that. We're doing that. But also, as we do that, we must suppress no generation. We need to stop suppressing the generations and start supporting the generations. Some of us are way too uncomfortable with the attitudes and appearance of the youth and young adults in our culture, which I get it. I get it. But we also make it difficult for them to feel welcome, to be involved, to lead. But these are the words I believe God wants us to use to describe how we treat younger generations. Empower, equip, prepare, affirm, and encourage. Look at God's heart towards the generation. Psalm seventy nine thirteen. So we, your people, and the sheep of your pasture, will give thanks to you forever. To all generations, we will tell of your praise. Psalm seventy one eighteen. And even when I am old and gray, O God, do not forsake me. Until I declare your strength to this generation, your power to all who are to come. And then Psalm 89, I will sing of the loving kindness of the Lord forever. To all generations, I will make known your faithfulness with my mouth. God's trying to empower us to empower others. So this year, we will focus on supporting generational ministry to our children, our youth, our young adults. This is a way for us to get a glimpse of tomorrow today. Youth workers regularly share that 85% of those 
who know came to know him before age 18. That means that a very strategic area to invest your life with is youth. We need people to volunteer to serve our youth in our children's and God squad ministry here on campus. See Connie, see Tammy, Stephanie, Golly, Jesse, to find out more about that. And you've been seeing our children in the choir. We have many other ministries which are in the pipeline that will target our children and getting adults involved in their lives. Are we excited for that? I hope so. I'm thrilled that we will be offering services with different paradigms. It's okay for people to worship differently. If you are over 40 and you get involved and you really like everything about it, then I'd probably say you're probably doing it wrong. It doesn't meet everybody's need. But we're going to provide a place here where you can find that and you can be fulfilled. Story for you. A man was looking for a coat on sale for one of his sons. He found one and was headed out to look around the store a little more when a young sales clerk approached him. Really, he chased him down and said, things are slow and I could really use the commission from this sale. So, when you are ready to pay, would you come back to me? And he was happy to, but before he did, he asked him how old he was. And he said he was 24. And the man said to him, we are starting a new service at Sunday nights at our church, and they are just for people your age. Here's a card. And that 24-year-old lit up. He lit up, and he stuck that in his pocket. I say that to say this. The generations need Jesus. They need Jesus. They will come and see if we will go and tell. They will come and see if we go and tell. So how can we help launch these ministries in our church? Well, first we shift from suppressing the generations to supporting the generations. But then we also go from watching the service. Hello, everyone at home. From watching the service to worshiping the Savior. Worshiping the Savior. Way too many of us are spectators during Sunday services. Because of our relationship with Jesus, we've been given the greatest gift of all. Have we not? We have been given the greatest gift of all. Forgiveness of sin. Freedom from guilt. Purpose for living. Power to live abundantly. And a home in heaven when we die. Yet, for some reason, some of us are held back from offering the praise and thanks to God that he deserves. Look at the scriptures. Psalm 33. I will sing to the Lord because he has dealt bountifully with me. Sing for joy in the Lord, O you righteous ones. Praise is becoming to the upright. And then Psalm 104. I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God while I have my being. What it's telling us here is to never forget that you are not the audience here. You realize that? You are not 
the audience when we come here. God is the audience. God is the audience. And we believe it or not, Dave, you've recruited every single one of these people because everybody here is in the choir. Everybody here is, yes, even you, Dub, you are in the choir. All right? Never forget that. Recently, I was planning some service and was thinking through about what we want to accomplish each week. We want you to experience God. When you come here, I want you to experience God, to encounter Him. But you have to understand the process necessary for you to engage. You have to take initiative. You have to participate if you're wanting to move spiritually. Following the people flow through the temple in Jerusalem is a very good model for us here. After rushing to get here, you might feel far from God. Whatever issue that you might be dealing with, you may not feel very close to God, like in the court of the Gentiles. But you focus on God, and you pray, and maybe the first song or prayer brings you closer to God, or brings you closer to the outer court, give you a visual. Then as we sing two or three more songs back to back, you find yourself even closer. You're in the inner court. God's word is taught and you feel conviction of sin. You confess it and are reminded of what Jesus did on the cross to forgive you. You're encouraged to move even closer to that holy place. And finally, because the curtain covering the Holy of Holies has been torn in two, because of Christ's sacrifice, you find yourself in the arms of God, experiencing Him as we get to the close of our service. That's what I want when we come here. I want you to experience God. I don't want you to come up here and say, Oh, that was a great sermon, Pastor. I used to, I'll, I'll tell you thank you, but in my mind I'm thinking, praise be to God. Let him get the glory. We have to make a conscious decision to get close to God week after week. So how will we engage in worship more passionately since we now know that God himself is the audience? We stop watching the service and we start worshiping the Savior. And not only that, and my final point this morning, I know this flew by fast, but my final point this morning is that we go from a comfort mindset to a combat mindset. And I'm not talking about conflict with other followers of Christ. I'm not talking about conflict with your family or your circle of friends. What I'm talking about is conflict in a spiritual sense. Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the world forces of this darkness that we live in. It's not against the spiritual forces of wickedness in the heavenly places. John Piper, in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad, writes... Very few people think that we are in a war that is greater than World War II or any other imaginable nuclear war. 
Few reckon that Satan is a much worse enemy than any earthly foe or realize that the conflict is not restricted to one global theater, but is in every town and city in this world. Who considers that the casualties of this war do not merely lose an arm or an eye or a leg or an earthly life. They lose everything, even their own soul, and enter a hell of everlasting torment. So we as a church must become warriors. We must become warriors. Now, I was just talking earlier. I've been a regular attender here for 15 plus years. And the desire of my heart was for my family to come and to worship and to pray together. Well, here we are, serving to the best of our ability, and now trying to fulfill God's calling for our lives and the lives of everyone here. And it has not always been roses. There have been bumps in the road, and with you know, various aspects and issues that arose. But I was encouraged by so many of you to keep pressing on, to stay the course. And I am so appreciative of that. So appreciative of that. And this was even with family members. So when you're thinking about giving up, when you're thinking about stopping your attempt to reach others, or family members, or whoever it may be. When you think you've done all you can to do to reach out to those individuals, share the good news of Jesus Christ. Share the good news of Jesus Christ. Don't be discouraged. Continue to pray. Continue to pray. Even if that person doesn't let you near them, you continue to pray for them, and that the Lord will put his labors in the path of that person in that timely fashion. It is not your job to save them. That's God's job. God has given me the joy of being the spiritual leader in my household. And that is what he called me to be. But telling others about the love of Jesus Christ, that is what we are all called to do. We are all called to do that. So the age-old question has always been, who will you bring with you? Who will you bring with you? So we must... Shift from a comfort mindset to a combat mindset. And our mindset can be a positive or negative influence on our behaviors and our feelings. But by changing our mindset, we can change the way we see others, their behavior, and the hope that we have in our future relationships with them. Paul wrote this letter in Ephesians from a prison cell. And he was persecuted for his faith in Jesus Christ. Yet, he was writing to encourage the church of Philippi. He did not have a serve me attitude. He was in service. Paul was that kind of person because he had a mindset and an attitude like that of Jesus Christ. In life, our mindset or attitude will determine our ability to overcome unfavorable circumstances. Negative personalities and a history of hurts. Chuck Swindoll wrote, Attitude to me is more important than facts. 
It's more important than the past, than education, than money, than circumstances, than failures, than successes, than what other people think or do. It is more important than appearance, giftedness, or skill. It will make or break a company, a church, a home. This lesson is important because each one of us believers will need encouragement, comfort, fellowship, and tender-hearted compassion. All these things become available in our relationship with God and with other believers. I know we all experience different upbringing in our lives, and that kind of shaped our attitudes. But we can all change and adopt our attitudes to be more of like Christ. Amen? There are four attitudes in Philippians that Paul identified as Christ-like living. First was living in love. And then living in harmony, living in humility, and living, lifting others. When Paul emphasized the importance of being like-minded, he is not telling Christians to think alike, to love the same things, or to accomplish the same goals in life. What Paul is telling us is that we are to be concerned about the same things, love, unity, humility, and others. So we need to consider these attitude adjustments that are available if we just follow them. The attitude of love is an attitude that brings out the best in one another. An attitude to bless others at the expense of yourself. Most people do not have an attitude of love. Most have an attitude of self-righteousness. When they argue with others, they automatically want to be right. That automatic response is an attitude or a mindset. And to change our attitude from self-righteousness or defensiveness or self-protection to love requires a change in our habitual response to things. An attitude of love will bring out the best in others. It moves us from criticism to consideration. From confusion to understanding. From injury to comfort and care. We need to allow this attitude to permeate us. The attitude of unity or harmony, which means to be considerate of and allowing for the preferences of others. You know, that's not walking up and saying, hey, I got the best looking phone here, you know. The iPhone 4012, wherever we're at now. I got the best phone, the best options, and ooh, look at the color. But what do you think? What do you think? The next time you push your preferences on others, remember that God only gave us ten commandments. And it has nothing to do with what our phone looks like, what color it is, and what it can do. It doesn't matter how you clean your bathrooms, how you clean your kitchen, what pots you use when you cook, how you put away your dishes, or how you put away your groceries. Many things that warp our attitude are just personal preferences. 
Walking in harmony is more important than what I like. An attitude of unity or harmony means explaining your stand. What do you believe? What works for you? But we do this in unity and knowing who our Lord is. Who is our Lord and Savior? An attitude of humility is the practice or habit of seeing others as important too. We need to do that more, don't we? Self-importance is prideful and destructive in relationships. Self-importance is as faulty as believing the sun revolves around the earth. But this is a very subtle attitude. Nevertheless, a very destructive one. And yes, we are all special. Important, talented, and blessed. But we're called to humility instead of pride. We are to humble oneself, and we know that's hard when you've, when you've got it going on like I do, right? See what I'm talking about? It doesn't even look good on you. But that's the point God's making here. Pride is not important. True humility, one of the keys to living at peace. Humility is coming into agreement with what God says about you. Humility is what God says about you and what your attitude is of spiritual modesty that comes from the understanding that our place in the larger order of things is not what you think. And it is not what others think. It is what God thinks. And we're all in the same boat, by the way. God loves us. He demonstrated that. Jesus demonstrated that by walking those streets, knowing where he was walking to. He could have rode in on a white stallion, but he rode in on a donkey, didn't he? He showed true humility. He could have walked in there with a serve me attitude because he was the Lord Jesus Christ. And he was there to have those serve his God. But he went into there with the idea of service. That was his purpose. He had the mission mindset. And it did not deter him in any way. Even though he was going into a week that you and I could never even imagine. But he did it willingly. And as a church, we can do the same. We can go into things willingly. We're not facing death here. But we are facing the death of ministry if we don't get it right. We won't be able to be an effective place of healing, an effective place of serving, an effective place of bringing those closer into relationship with him. That's what we are in danger of. An attitude of esteeming others means putting the needs of another before your own. And when you develop this attitude of esteeming others above others, uh, above yourself, you will spend less time arguing and more time enjoying the fellowship and meeting each other's needs. This attitude moves us towards selfless love and humility instead of pride and selfishness. The attitude of selfless love is completely foreign to most. 
To love like this, we must take on the same attitude as Jesus Christ, who humbled himself and became a servant to others. We must die to our own selfish ambition. And you might be thinking, I want these attitudes to be a part of my life. But how do I develop those attitudes? There's at least two ways in Philippians chapter 2. First, we develop Christ-like attitudes by the company we keep. By the company we keep. We see this in verses 1 through Paul, uh, one through 4. Paul points out to us, those who we spend time with influence our mindset. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul wrote, Do not be misled. Bad company corrupts good character. And this principle applies to attitude. Bad company corrupts good attitude. Parents are always concerned about negative peer pressure from other children influencing their children. But we rarely recognize negative peer pressure from the adult company that we keep. We think we are capable of standing our ground. And, but the reality is it cuts through us like a river, slowly eroding us day by day. The people we spend regular time with cut the path for our mindset to flow. If the person you're associating with don't have these healthy attitudes, disassociate from them and you will be better for it. Secondly, we need to develop Christ-like attitudes by the model we seek. We see this in verses 5 through 11. Paul calls us to develop our attitudes by modeling after Jesus Christ. It's one thing to define the attitudes of love and harmony, humility, and esteeming others. But seeing these attitudes in the life of another has powerful influence in our lives. The influence of the company we keep impacts us because we are passive. But the influence of the model we seek impacts us because we are proactive. So that's what I'm calling for this morning, is that we become more proactive. And if you're sitting there this morning because I said that I'm coming after you and that <laughs> scares you a little bit, good. Good, I'm doing my job, right? But more importantly, we're seeking to fulfill God's will for us. And that's what this week is about. God putting his plan into work. God sending his son to be the Savior for all, even if that meant sacrificing him on the cross, which he did because he loved us unconditionally. And so as we go into this week and we're focused on the Easter celebration and what it meant, I pray that you take the time this week to really figure out what that means to you. What does him going to the tomb mean to you? What does his resurrection mean to you? And now, with that resurrection, how does it feel to know that if you know Christ, you know eternity? Eternity with him. An eternity with your Savior. And then take it one more step further. How can I tell others about that? 
How can I reach others so that they can too experience that joy and experience that promise that God gave us so long ago? That should be our focus. When we love the broken, we must shift from serve us to service. To better love fellow believers, we must shift from impressing to impacting. To better love the generations, we have to shift from suppressing and start supporting. To better love the Lord, we must shift from watching to worshiping. And to better love the lost, we have to shift from comfort to combat. Because it is. It is a battle. But we're on the, we're on the greatest side ever. And we've already won that battle. But we have to get out there and do the job that he's called us to do. And that's what we need to be doing as a church. Amen? David, come. In our adult Bible classes this morning, we talked about abiding in Christ. And he said that we can do nothing, nothing, if we don't abide in him and he through us. May we have that as our goal this morning as we leave and into the new week. And may we be a difference maker reflecting on this. I love you, Lord. Oh, your mercy never fails me. All my days I've been held in your hands from the moment that I wake up until I lay my head yes I will sing of the goodness of God you know this is true here and all my life you have been Heavenly Father, as we leave here this morning, I pray that we approach things just like Christ did. Lord, we know that there's trouble on the horizon. But Lord, we go boldly from here knowing that we know you and that you love us, that you protect us, and you give us those opportunities so that we can reach others for you. Thank you, Jesus, for your sacrifice. Thank you that you endured what you did so that we could join you forever in your love. Thank you for the hope of eternal salvation. Thank you for those who have made that commitment to you. And Lord, even those who have not yet, Lord, I pray that you give every single one in this room that opportunity to tell them about you, to tell about Christ, to tell about the sacrifice, to tell about the story that we are all a part of. 
Lord, we thank you so much for your blessings. We thank you for this church. We thank you that, yes, we too can improve. And, Lord, you'll bless us in the process, and we are ever thankful for that. Thank you for our time together today. Bless us as we go. Bring us back safely. And, Lord, you will be glorified. And it's in your name we pray this morning, and all of God's people said, Amen. Amen. Have a great day in the Lord. The Bible says, if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. If you've never trusted in Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, we invite you to call on him now and through a simple prayer of faith, give your life to him. If you're not attending a church that honors the Bible as the Word of God, we encourage you to locate and begin attending such a church in the area where you live. The message you have just heard was preached from the pulpit of First Baptist Church, Winton, California. For more information on the ministry of First Baptist Church, Winton, please visit our website at wintonchurch.org.